0: Hey, welcome to the Cognitive Bias podcast. I'm your host David Dolan Thomas, and today we are going to talk about the base rate fallacy. So I'm going to give you a pretty shocking scenario here. Okay, you go to your doctor, your doctor gives you a test and says, um, you have tested positive for a fatal disease. And the test that they gave you is accurate 95% of the time. Um, and you might assume, okay, well, I guess there's a 95% chance I'm going to die. But you're missing a crucial piece of information. You don't know how prevalent that disease in the po- is in the population. It's If it's, say, one in a thousand people get this disease, you might still think, oh, one in a thousand people get the disease, the test is 95% positive. Okay, I still think, you know, 95% chance. But here's the thing. Actually, <laughs> right, if you do the math, you have a less than 2% chance of actually having that disease. Now, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's a 95% accurate test, one in a thousand people get it, Um, How can my likelihood be anything other than 95% and the answer is because math So this is part of the reason I failed probability Well, I think I was like a C minus student when I took probability But uh, if you actually do the math and it involves like Bayes theorem and other things that smarter people than I know And if you're looking for there's a lot of good math in the actual Wikipedia article for this that really breaks it down but if you do the math with that much prevalence in the population, 95% you know, accuracy isn't actually very accurate at all, right? Um, and it's one of those counterintuitive things about numbers that can really be misleading for us, right? Because what we're failing to account for is the base rate, that's why they call it the base rate fallacy. That base rate of one in a 1,000 makes a huge difference when you're talking about a 95% um, accuracy rate. It's, that's really not very accurate at all when you're talking about that small population. Uh, Here's another example, right? So let's say there's a breathalyzer test and 5% of the time it gives you a false positive, right? You're not drunk, but it makes, but it, uh, it registers you as being drunk. But it always works if you are drunk, all right? And let's say on a given night, one in a thousand people are driving drunk. Officer stops somebody at random, right? Gives them the breathalyzer test. Knowing nothing but that result, what do you think the odds are of that person being drunk? Again, you might say, oh, really, really high. And people do in studies. They Yes, really, really high. But because you're not thinking about that base rate of one in a thousand, 95%, that 5% false positive is actually huge, right? If you're talking about that kind of a population. Um, so again, the odds of them actually being drunk, even though the breathalyzer test says they're drunk is about 2%. um, uh, so it's this really weird thing where you think you have the certainty that you don't and numbers, throwing on numbers, like 95% accurate seems really good, but you have to take into all the account, all of the factors that, um, you have to take into account for probability, um, for touching those kinds of things. And again, it's not something we're used to thinking of. Um, here's where it gets really tricky, right? And I don't, I don't even begin to understand the math around this one but I'm going to give it to you anyway, and you can look at the math later. (laughs) But, um, and this is, again, an actual experiment people did. And they, um, uh, Kahneman and Tversky, of course, going back to um, uh, thinking fast and slow, the classic, right? But um, uh, eyewitness testimony, right? Again, one of those things that you feel like should be pretty accurate, right? Um, Let's say that there was a hit-and-run accident, and the witness says that they saw a blue uh, taxi cab fleeing the scene. Um, and in this particular town uh, where they saw the accident, uh, only 15% of the cabs are blue, right? This one cab company, is blue cabs, and only 50% of all of the cabs in that city are blue. Um, 80% of the time that particular witness can distinguish color. Like, they repeat, like, the conditions for that night, and they give the, you know, basically give the witness a vision test to see, okay, how accurately can they really distinguish color? And 80% of the time, they are accurate, right? So what are the odds that they actually saw a blue cab that night? What are the odds of the reporting, like, uh, accurate, uh, um testimony. And again, your gut reaction might be, well, 80%, right? Because that's what they saw. But if you think about the fact that only 15% of the cabs in that town are blue to begin with, the odds are actually only 40% that they saw a blue cab, right? That they're actually um, correctly um, identifying the color of that cab. Uh, The math is complicated, at least for me, but that's what it comes out to. And again, if it's complicated for me, it's going to be complicated for a jury, right? They're not going to think that they're talking to a witness who is more often wrong than right when it comes to identifying the color of the cab. But, you know, that's a huge thing, right? Someone's fate may rest on uh, testimony that, mathematically at least, is super wrong, right? Um, so, uh, so these are the kind of things. And don't think that it's just, um, you know, everyday folks like you and me who are uh, susceptible to this, right? So that whole thing about the false positive medical test, right? One in a thousand in the population test is 95% accurate. What's the odds that the person actually has the disease Harvard, uh, medical students and actual medical professionals guessed 95% most of the time, right? They didn't get it. Even these people did not get probability. They may be great with uh, medicine, not great with probability. Um, so this has huge consequences, right? So it's, it's, it's a really tricky thing to figure out. There's kind of another way to kind of talk about this, like another kind of test, And it's similar to one we did back when we were talking about—a different bias, Um, uh, actually—but if you take someone, let's say their name is Bob, and uh, they—what I can tell you about Bob is that he loves horror and sci-fi movies, that he um, always, uh, growing up, did, like, lots of arts and crafts, and every year creates these elaborate Halloween costumes for his kids— And I asked you, okay, what's more likely? Bob is a uh, visual effects supervisor on a TV show or Bob is a lawyer? Um, A lot of people might lean towards, you know, the visual effects, you know, uh, person on a TV show, right? Because I've told you all these things that sound like something a visual effects person would do. But anyone with like any sense of just how many lawyers are there in the country and how many visual effects supervisors on a TV show are there in the country would tell you the odds are overwhelmingly you know, in favor of Bob being a lawyer. There's something like 1.5 million lawyers in the US, right? So that, and I can't tell you how many visual effects supervisors there are in the US, but it's not 1.5 million. Um, So uh, it's, but the reason we kind of lean toward the inaccurate answer there is this thing called the representativeness heuristic. And again, it's responsible for half of these biases, but it's basically your brain reaching for the most obvious answer given the available information, right? Or the most easily retrievable information, right? Um, and what your brain will do in a situation like that is instead of answering, what is the likelihood that anyone (laughs) would be a lawyer versus being a visual effects supervisor? It asks, what are the odds that someone who likes sci-fi and horror and makes elaborate costumes would be a visual effects supervisor, which is not the same question, right? That's not actually what's being asked there, or that's not the best way to get to the information. Um... But I'll give you another, like, even more insidious version of this, right? So, Abed is a Palestinian. What are the odds—what's uh, more likely, that Abed is a terrorist or Abed is a te- school teacher? Okay, again, baseline, right? And I kind of did, like, a little bit of research here to try to get at this. It's harder than you think. But um, baseline, there are— 35,000 Palestinian teachers, and that's just looking at the number of teachers who went on strike in a particular strike in the West Bank in 2016, right? Just the teachers who went on strike in that strike in that school district in West Bank, 35,000. If you were extremely generous with the numbers, right, there are maybe 14,000 Muslim terrorists in the world. And that's all Muslim terrorists, right? Not just the Palestinian ones, right? All of them. Um so the odds even if you are really fudging the numbers there and there's a whole background there around how out of the 140,000 um terrorist incidents that have happened since 1970 uh easily less than 10% were committed by Muslims right think about that for a sec um but even if i sort of give you 10% right say, okay, now we're talking about 14,000 terrorists. That's still all of Muslims. That's still less than the number of school teachers in this one strike. So the odds that Abed is a teacher are way higher. Um, But again... Uh, for a lot of people, the first thing they're going to think of when they think of Palestinian is terrorist, And they're going to say, oh, well, the odds are like, you've given me enough information, right? That's all I need to know. Oh, c- clearly it's more likely that they are a terrorist, rather than looking at the baseline of just, well, how many Palestinian, you know, like how many teachers are there? How many terrorists are there? How many Palestinian teachers are there? Like, what is the more likely scenario? Um, uh, but that's the thing, right? And one sort of remedy to this is how you state the problem, right? So there are a few of these biases, but if you tweak how you're stating it, you do get uh, get to degrade the bias a little bit. So there's a version of the drunk driving thing where instead of saying, okay, this breathalyzer has a five, 5% false positive rate, right? Which already I'm starting out thinking, oh, this is an accurate test, right? Instead I start with, one in a thousand drivers are drunk, right? So I'm starting with the baseline. I'm getting to think about that first. Then instead of saying there's a 5% false positive or even a 95% accurate, what I say is 50 out of 999 people, this thing tests, um, test positive, even though they're not drunk, right? All of a sudden that 5% doesn't sound so good, right? 50 out of 999. That sounds like a lot. 50 people going to jail because um, the test got it wrong. That sounds like a lot. So all of a sudden, my hackles are up. So when you ask me, okay, what are the odds that I stop somebody at random and they're actually drunk uh, based on the breathalyzer saying they're drunk, I'm going to guess lower. I mean, I get as low as 2%, but I'm going to guess a lot lower because you framed it differently, right? And this goes back to the framing effect, right? So I'm basically using one bias to fight another. Um, So uh, don't believe everything you hear, or more to the point, do the math, right? (laughs) Um, when you hear something, um, and understand that, um, there are kind of some numbers out there that we can look to, to kind of put in context, uh, things like, uh, how accurate something is, or how likely a particular occupation is, or any of these things. Um, so this is... David Dylan Thomas for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, reminding you to do the math. Um, And we will see you next time.